This is Sea Power, the podcast from the Center for Naval Warfare Studies at the U.S. Naval War College in Newport, Rhode Island. Our program showcases leading thinkers and doers in the art and practice of maritime strategy and operations, broadcasting their cutting-edge insights around the world into all the ships at sea. I'm Isaac Carden, and I'm delighted to host today's conversation with Dr. Kamaldeen Ali, Captain retired of the Ghana Navy and the current Executive Director of the Center for Maritime Law and Security and a senior lecturer at the University of Professional Studies, Accra. I'm also delighted to be joined by my co-host and esteemed colleague, Dr. Nanahal Singh, who's Associate Professor at the National Security Affairs Department here at the Naval War College. He is, among many other talents, a distinguished scholar of African politics, and he's going to take the lead in our discussion today with Dr. Ali as we consider the nature and stakes of strategic competition in and around the African littoral. The views presented here do not reflect the official positions of the Naval War College, the Department of the Navy, or the Department of Defense. Welcome, Dr. Ali. I was hoping you could start by telling us a little bit about your own background and by the organization that you're part of. Thank you very much. I spent two decades in the Ghana Navy, where I served in different roles. Of course, I graduated from law school and I joined the Navy as a lawyer. I quickly found myself doing multiple things, including maritime policy and maritime security. I also had the unique opportunity of serving extensively on the global platform, including on peacekeeping operations across the continent. Having spent 20, 21 years in the Ghana Navy, I retired and have since been leading a civil society organization think tank called the Center for Maritime Law and Security Africa where I describe myself as the team leader. Uh, We looked at a spectrum of things so far as the maritime space is concerned, training policy, security, strategy across the African continent. What's important to Ghana and the countries about the Gulf of Guinea in terms of what their maritime security needs are? I think perhaps one of the most important things is to clarify the use of the Gulf of Guinea, although over the last decade, it has become much more a term of art. The referencing of that has become much more clearer. Uh, but here we are talking about the West Coast of Africa. Although the term is used generally in different ways, we are looking at the littoral states from Cape Verde down to Angola. In terms of geographic description, that also includes Mauritania. Significantly, the Gulf of Guinea found its greatest crystallization as an emergent region of global interest in the UN Security Council resolutions that were adopted in 2011 and 2012. And of course, also the recently adopted resolution of 2022. And that has since given a clearer idea of what constitutes the Gulf of Guinea. In terms of maritime interests, Ghana is somehow located central in the Gulf of Guinea a relatively bigger country in the region with vast maritime interests. As a country that counts amongst one of the biggest in the sub-region, trade and maritime traffic interest is key, also because Ghana do receive trade injection that is just not meant for Ghana, but that is on transit to neighboring countries like Niger, Burkina Faso, and Mali. Significantly also, Ghana, perhaps one of the unique countries when it comes to fishing globally. Apart from the higher consumption of fish as a source of protein, uh, 
location is very central to Ghana's cultural, economic, and strategic interests. Ghana's fishing interest is not limited to the coastal space of Ghana, but is one that stretches across the Gulf of Guinea. Indeed, I do call Ghana a great fishing nation in the world. Because traditional, that is what it is. Although you may not find it very high in the economic figures of the country. More recently, offshore oil and gas has become significant. And again, Ghana now depends on that significantly for its budget and for social and economic development. So offshore oil and gas resources are very significant. Finally, the security of our nation depends on making sure that all the borders of the country are fortified, and that includes the maritime border, which stretches almost uh, 540 kilometers. Uh, this more or less answer for many other countries in the Gulf of Guinea, although at the varying interest. A country like Nigeria significantly have much higher interest in maritime traffic, one of the biggest countries in the world, and its interest also in offshore oil and gas is very significant and high. Uh, relatively lower interest when it comes to fisheries. If you were to go up and you look at Senegal, also very high, especially in fisheries and significantly high in maritime traffic as well. But generally across the sub-region, offshore oil and gas is one that you will find to be common across the Gulf of Guinea region. If we take this more broadly and we talk about pan-African maritime interests, what are the interests you would like to highlight for our listeners so that they can understand broadly what are the concerns which are shared by most African countries? In terms of greater Pan-African concerns and interests, largely speaking, this is one of the longest coasts of the African continent. If you look at the west coast of Africa, of course, and the other side is the east coast, the southern coast is much smaller. So what it means is that a good number of the population of the African continent are either abetting directly, having the sea as its littoral entry, or those that are landlocked are also depending on that. So in terms of the larger African interest, this maritime space is very strategic. It answers to close to 50% of the African countries, both littoral and neighboring landlocked states when you put it together. So it's a corridor that is of strategic importance to the region. And it is also important to look at it that two of the most significant regional economic organizations, that is the ECOWAS, Economic Community of West Africa, and the Economic Community of Central Africa are also situated largely within this particular space. So again, it feeds into the larger African continent and the larger Pan-African interest as well. To sort of summarize some of the, the interests you've raised, so you've talked about fishing interests, oil and gas, shipping and trade, and security. Is there anything else that you want to raise that's important to understand? One of the things that, of course, is also important to understand is one that is derived from the nature of the maritime space, that the maritime space do admit foreign interests. Uh, foreign interest in the sense that it is an open space uh, for other countries to achieve certain geostrategic advantages. And to that extent, then, there are competing national, regional, and continental interests. But also, if you were to put the continent or the regional on one side and you look at it from a foreign perspective, 
that there are foreign strategic interests that also have to be moderated, aligned, or counter, depending on the particular situation when you put this in the context of the regional and continental interests of Africa. If I could jump in on that, Dr. Ali, I'm curious if you could expand a bit more about what that looks like from your perspective in Ghana or from the Gulf of Guinea in general, when you hear or see the discourse, particularly in the United States, about strategic competition with China and the interest in whether or not China is establishing commercial or military footholds across the continent. What does that discussion look like to you? And how do you think African nations in general are perceiving the strategic competition or the great power competition storyline? Perhaps the best place to pick it from is to look at the African continent historically, that it has historically been a region of great power competition, great power interest. This has given rise to many things historically. You can look at slavery, you can look at the industrial revolution, and then you can look at colonialism. So in terms of great power interest in the region, whether in the land itself or in the littorials and the maritime space, historically there has been competing great interest. Of course, this partly contributed, not directly, but indirectly to the competition in the world that will result in the First World War, in the Second World War, and then the continent finally got itself if you're on the grip of colonialism. So by and large, if you look at the profile of great interest now in the region, you can talk about many countries. You can talk about China, you can talk about the United States, you can talk about the United Kingdom, you can talk about France. There was a receded interest of countries such as Spain, Italy, but you have got a re-engaged interest of these countries. You can talk about a Danish emerging but significant interest in the region. And over the last decade, you can talk about many other countries that historically didn't really have a footprint in the region. It can be the Turkish Navy. It can be the German Navy that's basically never present in the region for a long time. But then you can talk about visits from Russia. So the geostrategic interests have actually become a very broad. But specifically on the case of China, much like many other countries, you can look at different facets of the Chinese interest in the region. You can look at it from the point of view of resources, living resources, potentially non-living resources, but broader economic interests that translate, for example, into port development for trade expansion access. You can see that. Aligned to most of these interests, whether it is Chinese, whether it is French or other countries can also be military strategic interests. And that is another area that deserves attention. The general problem set facing a lot of countries in the developing world, if I can try and try and crudely summarize, it has to do with economic benefits that are expected in transactions with China, particularly trade and resources and increasingly investment and infrastructure. And that tends to be stacked up against security interests and a security outreach. And I'm wondering how that trade-off looks from the standpoint of Ghana or to the extent you feel comfortable addressing it from a broader perspective. When you're navigating this increasingly tense bilateral relationship with the United States and China, what are some of the strategies and options and interests that arise as a result of that for African nations contemplating how to pursue their interests in this context? 
Yeah, I think as it, again, you look at this from a perspective that is broader and then draw into this. Post-colonialism, there has been a continuity of north-south interest, you know, strategic, economic in the Gulf of Guinea and across the African continent. For example, its European investment has, in many areas of the continent, has been there. Um, within the European investment, you can single out France, for example, that have got deep-seated economic interests, either on lands, on other businesses, on offshore oil and gas, or you can even talk about it on port facilities with Bolero, for example, significantly for many years having a continuous presence and interest. Then it is only much recently that you are seeing what you may call a south-south economic interest because the economic paradigm has always been a north-south. And we are seeing a south-south economic interest. And within the south-south economic interest, China is the one that has stretched very high. Although you can put other countries like Turkey that are growing, India that are becoming significant, and Brazil that have become interested in that south-south paradigm. And here, of course, China's interest is growing across the sub-region in terms of investment and in terms of securing larger strategic needs. Strategic needs in living resources, in offshore oil and gases, in trade, as I mentioned earlier. I think it is largely in this regard and partly also because once somebody's economic progress in the geostrategic sense either serves to deter or to undermine another person's economic interest. So where you have China making significant economic interest, what it does mean is that those countries that did have traditional economic interests are being squeezed in a way, but also because of the peculiarity of Chinese economic interest in the last decade, that it has been much more forceful, it has been vast and entering many areas. I want to also say that, and perhaps also because there's a very great connectivity between most of Chinese interests and the Chinese states, you know, in terms of the corporate relationship that exists, and I think this tends to be significant. You also realize that in the last decade, really, Gulf of Guinea and African countries have still not found themselves out of economic problems. So their economic needs and financial needs continue to grow, and China seems to be the one that is sitting close by and seem to have that economic support to meet what you call appetite in loan, the appetite in development projects. The balance of this in terms of who is benefit, who benefits more, is something that we can continue to discuss. On the one hand, where countries do have significant economic needs, as in the case of Africa, and then you have it on a plate from China, the temptation is that generally you may not have a very well thought through and balanced economic relationship in dealing with that. On the other hand, also, you are talking about countries that have immediate concerns and then China that has a long-term strategic interest. When you are looking at dealing with immediate concerns of infrastructure, of budgetary balancing, providing help, providing education, those issues are so pressing that in the balance of dealing and negotiating with that, with a country that is having a long-term strategic view of that relationship, the power balance will always be unequal. It's almost like the one that is very hungry and looking for something now, and the one that has something to give and don't bother whether that is paid today. 
you are likely to take from a point that is disadvantageous in a way, but it is partly because you have this desire and hunger to, to take care of, and then the, what is needed or what is required is, is in front of you. The term hungry is a perfect transition to the discussion of fisheries in Africa that we're hoping to engage in. And I, I really appreciate your efforts to paint a more realistic picture of what the players are like in this space and the many more actors beyond the great powers notionally in competition in that space. I think it really helps us get a better feel for some of the actual interests and dynamics of the regional states. So on that count and on these questions of being very hungry, I wonder if Nanahal wants to drive us towards a discussion on sustainable fisheries and IUU fishing. So I want to start with the concept of sustainable fisheries, which your organization uses. Can you explain what that is and how it relates to the narrow notion of IUU fishing? And then I want to make the discussion We've been talking very strategically. I want to make it a little bit concrete and talk about specific nations and what African countries have to do in order to ensure their long-term food prospects in their backyard. So first up, why don't you start talking to us about what is sustainable fisheries? How is that different from IUU fishing? Why is this an important concept to understand? Sustainable fisheries is all embracing. On the one hand, you are talking about fishing today, fishing tomorrow, and ensuring you fish the other day and the other day. So what it means is that exploiting fishery resources are mindful of the fact that their resources should continue to be there and should be available for future generations. And much so because fishery resource is a self-generating resource. So it has its own internal sustainability but then human activity can undermine that sustainability. So this idea of keeping the resource in a good shape, to be functional, to be there for exploitation today into the future is one angle of it. Sustainable fisheries also mean making sure that the food security needs of the African continent, and here, if you want to talk about the Gulf of Guinea and a country like Ghana that is highly dependent on fisheries, Ghana is among the top five, top 10 countries when it comes to the consumption of fish. Per capita consumption of fish in Ghana is very high. A number of Gulf of Guinea countries falls within the same space. So this is food security concern. So sustainable fishery also means that letting the fish resource to be there to be able to meet the food security needs of the continent. But it also means the livelihood of coastal communities that directly depend on fishery resources for economic livelihood that transform into a cultural thing that they keep with, but also it has other social and economic direct relationship with the coastal communities. Importantly, it's also the gender dimension to make sure that fisheries continue to serve its gender needs. Apart from the men that go to sea, if you look at the value chain of fisheries, 60% or more in the value chain is women. And what many people do not know also is that a greater percentage, up to about 80% of the investment in fisheries in the artisanal sector is women. It's women capital, it's not men capital. So 80% of the investment in the fisheries sector is women. So also making sure that this investment is protected, the investment can generate the needed economic benefits and able to continue the gender empowerment. So all these are elements of sustainable fisheries. 
So when you come to the African continent and the Gulf of Guinea in particular, the fishery resources are in a state of serious decline. Uh, many resources are either collapsed or a significant number of them are highly overexploited. Uh, if you look at Ghana, there are certain fish species that were in abundance and harvested in tons. Today, you hardly get it at all. So this is an indication of the fact that the sustainability of fisheries curve, that we are at the tipping point when it comes to the sustainability. There are a number of reasons that account for this. But let me put some figures for you to understand. If you go back and you look at a country like Ghana, and you look at the catch of Ghanaian fisheries, artisanal sector, the tonnage that was landed by the artisanal sector in 1994 is more than the tonnage that has been landed in 2019, 2020. Yet the population of Ghana from 1994 and now has actually tripled. So you are looking at an increasing population, increasing food security needs and concerns, increasing economic dependency on fisheries, and a declining resource. And this decline is a number of reasons. Uh, one significant reason, for example, is external and the other is internal. Internal has to do with a lot of unsustainable practices when it comes to the fisheries, including illegal activity when it comes to the fisheries. The external has to do with two dimensions. You can talk about the illegal exploitation of fisheries, which actually doesn't constitute the major part of the external dialogue, but you can talk about the legal exploitation of fisheries within the external dialogue, but that legal exploitation then tends to be detrimental to the regional interest, to the food security needs of the continent. But it is something that is legal, but something that hasn't taken into consideration the sustainability of the fisheries and the food security needs of the continent. So if we speak about Ghana and most of the countries in the Gulf of Guinea, a significant sector of the pelagics and the troll industry is Chinese, as much as a significant part of the tuna industry is European. So tuna industry is highly European and Korean in terms of the tuna industry, but when it comes to the pelagics, which and largely the pelagics that also relate to the coastal community and that also is needed for the direct food security needs. That largely is Chinese. In terms of the fisheries arrangement, Chinese fishing interests in the Gulf of Guinea, but also Korean and others tend to operate through what you call domestic partnerships. Although largely in most of the countries, the law requires that fishing license should be given to a Ghanaian or a Senegalese, the law also makes room for a Ghanaian incorporated entity or a Senegalese incorporated entity or an Ivorian incorporated entity. So within this, if you want a corporate arrangement, then you can have an external interest, for example, a Chinese interest that will enter into corporate relationship with a Ghanaian interest and secure a license for the purposes of fishing. Largely then, if you look at it in terms of the beneficial ownership and the driving or controlling interest in the fisheries in the pelagics, you will then find that a lot of that is Chinese in Ghana. Today, in Ghana, you can perhaps put that at 80% or more when it comes to the troll sector. Of course, when it comes to the tuna sector, it's 100%, and China is not really in the tuna sector. But when it comes to the troll and the pelagics, 
there you have about 80% of China. We've been doing some work in Senegal, where also about 70%, and you can find a significant footprint in a country like Cote d'Ivoire. Cote d'Ivoire really don't have significant fisheries, yet over the years, in the last decade also, the external or foreign interest in the fishery, traditional Cote d'Ivoire will have fishing arrangement with the EU and France, which has to do with the tuna sector, but in the pelagics also, you have also found an increasing Chinese vessels registered in that regard. So it is in this context that you then talk about China seeking its food security interest, but also because of corporate economic interest versus the Gulf of Guinea countries' food security interest and the livelihood of coastal communities. So these two dimensions are important. Another dimension of the declining fisheries, really, is also because of land-based activities. Land-based activities across the Gulf of Guinea has either affected the estuaries and the, uh, the, the immediate coast areas that are significant for the breeding of fish stocks that has been affected. Um, land activities, especially illegal mining, for example, has washed substantial mercury and other things into the immediate coastal areas, polluting the coastal area and also diminishing the water quality when it comes to living resources and fisheries. So this is also another dimension that you can put within the bigger puzzle. Although some of that, again, comes back to China, right? The problem of illegal mining in Ghana, and particularly the use of highly toxic chemicals, is an issue which is largely associated with illegal Chinese mining activity. Over the last decade in particular, there has been an exponential rise in surface mining in Ghana through also the complicity of Ghanaians and other neighboring countries and Chinese counterparts has led to devastation of many forest areas and many places in Ghana. Normally, this is done very close to water bodies and rivers, and most of these rivers are polluted because of this. Uh, if you want Chinese and the Ghanaian complicity in almost all cases. And this has washed domestically or inland. A lot of these water bodies have almost lost their ecological significance, that life is almost dead in a lot of these water bodies. And this also washed them into the immediate coastal areas. And you are right, then that also then affects the breeding site of fisheries and other marine living resources. So significantly then also this Chinese complicity and wrongdoing with Ghanaians and on the land when it comes to illegal mining also then tend to affect marine living resources sustainability. What kinds of policy remedies would you suggest both at the domestic level and the foreign level either in terms of African countries foreign policy or other countries like what the U.S. and European countries could do in order to safeguard these fishery resources, which are important for, you know, Chinese, European and American food security as, as well. I know the tuna I eat is caught somewhere off the coast of Ghana. So we have a common interest in, in all these things. What do you think is a better way to safeguard food interests, firstly for Africans, but also for the rest of the world. Because if these fishing stocks collapse, everyone gets harmed as a result of it. 
Uh, there is a greater need for uh, resource transparency across the African continent. A different level of resources and, and living resources is one of them and fishery resource. Uh, one of the things that we have been pushing in some of the work that we are doing, for example, a work that is funded by the Bloomberg Foundation, uh, but recently also a work that is also funded from the U.S. State Department, is to look at uh, the whole issue of transparency in fisheries uh, in fisheries governance. African countries need to be more transparent in terms of how they deal with the resources of the people. Fishery resource is an important national resource, and decision-making regarding that must be strategic, must be transparent, and the governance context within which that decision is taken must be well noted. Increasingly, you have many fishing lessons that are given, and the decision-making space in doing that is very limited. I always ask this question, when people want to undertake many economic activities, they can't announce the economic activity and ask for people to bid, whether it is a mining, whether it's an oil field, then what makes fishery resource different? What makes it that one or two people sit in a space with little information to coastal communities, with little information to the rest of the country, and allocate a fishing license, which it's something that is economically significant. So there must be a paradigm shift to say that fishery resource is much like many other resources that are significant for Ghana and that are significant for Gulf of Guinea countries. So within that strategic context, the resource must be administered in such a way that there's greater transparency. And some of the initiatives that we have used, for example, in the extractive industry transparency, some of those tools, and that toolbox is available for us to fall into and demand greater transparency when it comes to uh, fishery resources. So this is significant. For example, there are so many countries in the Gulf of Guinea that a mere vessel register is not available. It's not available to the public and not even available to other key national institutions. And you'll be sitting somewhere uh, in the fisheries ministry or the fisheries commission, but even the Navy, and other agencies that are supposed to play a complementary role do not have access to it. And this certainly may not also be available online at all for anybody to see. So again, we need greater transparency in that. Beyond the Ghanaian or regional partner, we need to look at the beneficial interest in the fishery. Who is having the beneficial interest? Where are the thousands and millions of dollars going into? And who is taking that? and what economic benefits in terms of percentage accrue to the country. These are things that at a larger level, the countries in the Gulf of Guinea are supposed to uh, do, but foreign countries that also want to support sustainability and fishery resources can demand and push the front for this. It is in the interest of China itself to look at these companies and to say that these companies that are into distant water fishing, you are there today, you'll want to be here the following day and want to be here a decade. So it is also in your economic interest to make sure that the resource is sustainable. So China is also supposed to demand more transparency, accountability, and stewardship when it comes to its own external fishing vessels that undertake fishing in the sub-region. Strategically at the continental level, the African Union, for example, need to go beyond the Africa Day of the Seas and if we want to look at the Africa that we want and the agenda of the Africa that we want, this is one significant area to look at.
that there must be greater emphasis on living resources in the African continent and fisheries in particular is one of those key resources. Now that makes a lot of sense. I mean, Ghanaians eat an average of 25 kilograms of fish every year, right? Uh, which is significant amount. I know when I was in Ghana, I would eat fish breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and it would be different fish and, you know, prepared differently. And you, you can't get away from the importance of fisheries, both to people's lives at a small level, culture, and the economic as a whole. So clearly, they're very strong interests here. I wanted to, to shift slightly to talk about some of the other strategic issues in, in the region. Broadly, one of them is counter-piracy. So piracy around the Horn of Africa has largely been reduced to much lower levels. But piracy continues in, in the Gulf of Guinea, where it is a significant regional and global issue. And it's an issue which attracts the interest of great powers because they're interested in protecting oil and shipping, and also because it gives them a reason or motivation perhaps to seek both partnerships and perhaps bases in the region. So I was wondering if you could talk about counter-piracy, how severe the issue is, and the role of external partners in dealing with the issue directly. Yeah, thank you, uh, Professor Singh, for that uh, question. It's, it's one of the coincidence, but the greater paradox when it comes to piracy in the Gulf of Guinea, uh, sorry, in, in African continent, that at, at the sunset of piracy was the sunrise of another piracy. By 2012, we had significantly seen the sunset of piracy end in the east coast of Africa, especially of Somalia. And it was just by paradox that in the same 2012, we had almost got a rising piracy in the Gulf of Guinea. That paradox is very interesting. And Gulf of Guinea piracy has been much more endearing. And within the decade, it has moved from what I call the parasitic piracy to a piracy that became a piracy enterprise, full-blown piracy across the Gulf of Guinea uh, that threatened national and regional security but significantly impact on global security. Of course, the thing about piracy always is that the numbers are not in thousands, the numbers are in few hundreds at most, but the global impact is very high on trade, on national security, regional security, on seafarers, welfare, life and safety, and the investment that is around fisheries. And this is where uh, Gulf of Guinea piracy has been significant. Of course, the piracy in Gulf of Guinea itself can always be traced back to the Niger Delta region. And again, this is where you can have a resource link to the piracy, much like in Somalia, but a different version in the Gulf of Guinea, where, you know, pollution in coastal communities, partly because of Western corporate culpability, polluting vast areas in Niger Delta region led to social agitation, social upheavals, that then gradually translated into piracy, where mobs that were supposed to be protecting community interests later realized that piracy was something that they could, if you want, um, transform their stills and their energy into. And that has since left the rest of the Gulf of Guinea and the global community in the grip of this piracy. 
In many respects, that piracy have taken different dynamics. It has expanded. The business model became very dependent. Ability of the pirates to undertake surgical operations became something that was perfected, especially by 2019, 2020. We have seen a much more decline in the piracy in the region as a result of a combination of factors. Um, but that is not something to celebrate and to say that it is something that is going to be long lasting. Two years is not enough. We've still seen some elements, some indication of the piracy still subsisting. And going back to the point that I mentioned, a number of a combination of factors have led to the decline. Uh, regional effort has been significant and some global support has been significant. If you want to step back, since we are on a U.S. podcast, and to look at the significant role of the United States in driving Gulf of Guinea maritime security, it is important to realize that what we call in the Gulf of Guinea the Yaoundi architecture was something that the U.S. played a significant part in, in enhancing. Uh, first, from the point of view of a civil approach through the Africa Center for Strategic Studies, for five years, I believe that a lot of work that was done by the ACCS helped to galvanize the political and the military environment. And then the, the work that um, was done by the, the African command, bringing the economic community of West Africa and the economic community of Central Africa, especially in the Stuttgart, the Stuttgart Conference of 2011, was significant in laying the foundation for the Yaoundi Code of Conduct that will be adopted later in 2013 for the Gulf of Guinea. This is very significant. And then the U.S. presence in the region has also been significant. Of course, one can look at different strategic explanations of this. The U.S. is a very late arrival in the Gulf of Guinea compared with other strategic interests of French, historical of the United Kingdom, and other countries. But since the U.S. have re-engaged or engaged with the Gulf of Guinea and Africa, but speaking about the Gulf of Guinea in this context, that has been a bit much more sustained up to now. I believe that apart from trying to ensure the broader security of the region, um, it is also a platform for relationship building and achieving other U.S. key strategic interests, including countering the growing Chinese interests in the region as well. Is this an area where you could see perhaps cooperation between the U.S. and Europe on one side and Chinese on the other, given that they share a common interest in security and in freedom of navigation in the region? Or do you think it's it's not likely and the countries are going to have to pick partners to work with and you can't get the big foreign powers in the on, on the same side. To tack on to that excellent question, what's the nature of the security provision that African nations are getting from the Americans as compared to the Chinese, as compared to the Europeans? What's the nature of their security assistance and engagement? What do you understand their maritime security interests to be, and how does that play into your decisions about how best to develop those relationships? In terms of the security support and security relationship building, it takes different formats. For example, when it comes to the U.S. and the other European countries, uh, there has always been traditional military-to-military -military cooperation. Of course, it varies depending on which country you are talking about. If we are talking about French 
uh, military cooperation, you are talking about it from a different angle. But if you are talking about broader traditional uh, Western uh, US or UK and other countries, then it's at a different level. And uh, there has always been that military to military cooperation. And a larger part of it is expressed in capacity building. In capacity building, training, and trying, for example, to to build military expertise, certain times also in terms of technology support, in terms of intelligence support, and in terms of information sharing support. This traditional has been it. For example, if we look at U.S. support, U.S. support to maritime security in the region uh, started with, if you want, the Africa Partnership Station. The Africa Partnership Station lasted for close to five years or more, where a dedicated U.S. ships was always in the region, and then you have um, seafarers or navies in the region embarked on the Africa Partnership Station, which was normally a U.S. vessel, and then a long period of training and sailing will take place. So this started. Then you have other forms of U.S. support, since you are talking about U.S. in this context. Uh, for example, recently you have what you call the VBSS, Vessel Boarding Training, other to be able to counter piracy, but other high crimes that the U.S. is supporting capacity building in Ghana, and you can get it also across the sub-region. You also will have it noted that there is an annual Obangami exercise that the U.S. also perform or conduct Obangami for the Gulf of Guinea exercise, cutlass for the East Coast of Africa that the U.S. Uh, use to train and to bring, um, if you want, operational sharpness in, in the Gulf of Guinea region. If you want to just oppose that with Chinese in terms of uh, Chinese support, Chinese support, although U.S. also have support with platforms, Chinese support tend to be expressed more in the context of platforms. And given the fact that there is a yawning gap for platforms in the Gulf of Guinea, uh, there is no doubt that there is a greater opportunity for China to continue to help in the context of platforms. Ghana has been a beneficiary of Chinese platforms more recently, although it has been a beneficiary of U.S. platforms also. You can talk about Benin. You can talk about recently Nigeria receiving uh, Chinese vessels. So that is one area. Western countries generally here, France and other countries have also been looking into information sharing tools or what you will call uh, maritime domain awareness tools. Recently, you can talk about, historically though, you can talk about the USC vision, which is a US maritime domain awareness tool. But much recently, you can talk about other tools that are driven from a Western source uh, that are being used. What is that one called? Yeah, the Yaris, for example, uh, the Yaris that has been pushed, when I say push here in the positive sense, by French and other African countries. So in terms of it broadly, then Professor Singh question then talks about the opportunity for cooperation, uh, whether that is possible. It is possible if we look at it in the context of strategic alignment. Uh, there is no doubt that we will continue to have positive rivalry, but there's also the possible that we can have toxic rivalry. The US and China are members of the Security Council, so in many fronts, whether in Africa, Asia, or everywhere, there must be the room for some kind of cooperation. And that is significant for the African continent and the Gulf of Guinea as well. So there is room 
for cooperation and collaboration and dealing with the security issues in the region. There is common trade interest to protect. There is common um, African needs that you know, require foreign assistance and that foreign assistance is with our color and race. If it comes from anywhere, it is required to meet the, the economic uh, socioeconomic gap that exists in the continent. So there is a common platform for the US, uh, Europe, and, and China to be able to collaborate in, in addressing maritime security in the Gulf of Guinea. But that is where uh, cooperation and collaboration is looked at from the positive angle. But where we look at it from a zero-sum point of view, where some benefits that accrue to one country is seen as something that diminishes the strategic advantage of another country, then you may not have this kind of cooperation. In this regard, then, uh, there is a general tendency, I think, of a zero-sum approach when it comes to Western countries in particular, and the growing global competition between China and the West. It's always as if, if there is cooperation on one side by one country, it undermines the interests of another. This is not something that is very um, unique to the Gulf of Guinea. It is finding its expression in the global US-China competition. And of course, it also resonates with the Gulf of Guinea as well. So what, what we should be seeking is look at greater a sense of collaboration. Today, as we speak on this podcast, November 23rd, 2022, the Security Council is being briefed on Resolution 2634, which was adopted by the Security Council. This resolution was adopted on the vote of the U.S. as much as it has been adopted on the vote of China. So the assumption is that both countries then find that Security Council resolution useful for the region and as global leaders, traditional and emerging global leaders, they've all voted to endorse that Security Council resolution. The expectation then from the Gulf of Guinea countries should be that China and the US and other European countries can cooperate in implementing the objective of that uh, particular resolution. On that hopeful note, I see we're at time and we are deeply, deeply appreciative to you, Dr. Ali, for taking the time to share your extraordinary knowledge on African maritime security and insights into a subject that's really vital for African nations and for the United States as it considers how to engage there and across the world. So we wish you fair winds and following seas and hope to see you again on the Sea Power podcast before too long. And thank you so much. Uh, Dr. Nanahal Singh for leading such a fascinating discussion. I appreciate uh, both of your time and hope to see you again soon. It has been a pleasure talking on this podcast and meeting you and contributing to this greater conversation. And I think more and more, the discussion should always be about what is needed to promote greater security in the African continent rather than what U.S. seek to achieve or what China seeks to achieve. If we look at it from that perspective, there will be greater gains for the continent and for the region in particular when it talks about the Gulf of Guinea. It has been a pleasure.
here do not reflect the official positions of the Naval War College, the Department of the Navy, or the Department of Defense.